air freshener. One twenty-nine on debit MasterCard. Tube sock, four dollars. Paper clip, ballpoint pen, rubber band, tweezers, nasal spray, and a turkey baster. Fourteen dollars. The little things that get you through the day, priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For everyday stuff, there's debit Mastercard. Good morning. Welcome. My name is Mark MacGyver. Um, we're, yeah, we're my two tops, um, tube socks. My kids won't let me wear them anymore, guy. Um, we're talking about priceless, the values that we hold to here at Door Creek Church, the enduring commitments of a Christ follower. So we talked about a life of worship, worshiping God in all of life, the Bible's authority, centering our lives on God's truth last week, the richness of community, growing together in Christ. And today we look at compassionate service, humbly extending his compassion to those in need. And when you think about those in need, you might think of a place like State Street. Now, we've probably all been down to State Street and you've probably seen some of the people here in this collage of pictures. I don't know how it goes for you, but um, what happens when you walk by or someone comes up to you wanting some help? Wanting some change. There's times probably where we just walk by hoping not to make eye contact. Maybe there's been times where we've dug in and grabbed some loose change and, and gave it to them. Maybe there's been other times where we've had time to not give them money but to give them a meal and extend some time over a meal together with them, get to know them. I think the truth is when we find ourselves walking down State Street in a situation like that, we're we're often not exactly sure what to do. It's a little awkward. And when you add to that the needs of our world, compassion can be a completely overwhelming, guilt-inducing thing. So I got a letter this week from World Vision where they informed me that every day in the developing world, 15,000 children a day die of starvation. Not because of disease, not because of a war. They simply don't have enough food to keep them alive. You add to that the the issues of world poverty, the crisis of AIDS, malaria. You add to that human trafficking, genocide, wars. And and you go, I, I don't even know where to start. And then you think about something a lot closer to us, the hurting people in our lives where we can extend compassion. And what I hope is that none of you leave here this morning feeling guilty about what you haven't done, but that you leave here this morning excited about what you could do to someone God's placed in your life, to people in our city, making a difference around the world as we extend with humility Christ's compassion to those in need. So we remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the Bible's authority and that great verse, it's kind of like the Bible on the Bible. Remember that one, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17? 
Remember this verse? All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for what? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we want to use the template of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 as we think about compassion. Realizing that it's useful for teaching, to teach us about it. What does the Bible say? How does the Bible rebuke us about where we've fallen short here and lost our way? How does it get us back on the right track and correct us? And how does it train us to be a people whose lives are marked by good deeds, good works, works of compassion? How does it do that? Well, we're going to look, and we'll begin, first of all, then, with the Bible's teaching. All Scripture is useful for teaching, what does the Bible say? The first thing the Bible says is this. Compassion is at the heart of God's character. We see it in that classic story of Moses up on the mountain with God. He's got this invisible God who he's dealing with, and yet he senses his presence, he hears his voice, and he wants to get a glimpse of his glory. So we read this in Exodus 33. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. Show me your greatness, your goodness, God. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. A few verses later, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. So the very first thing he says, you want to know about my glory? You want to know how great I am? You want to know the essence of my goodness? He says, well, here's my name. Here's my character. I'm compassionate and gracious. He goes on, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. It's at the heart of God's character. The psalmist writes about our compassionate God, a merciful God, when he says this in Psalm 146. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien, the refugee, the immigrant, and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. It's at the heart of of God's character, compassionate. And it's the heart of his will, of his desire for us as his people to follow in his steps. And what you notice is that throughout the teaching of Scripture, it teaches us about compassion. So you start right back in the very beginning of the Bible. Those first books, first five books, they're called the law. In the law, it's clearly taught. The law teaches it. So like Deuteronomy 15 says this, if there's a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the lands that you're about to go, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend whatever he needs. This whole idea of compassion was written in the very law of God. So there are these laws, not just not to be tight-fisted, but to be open-handed. But there are laws that said every third year you do something special with your crops. Here's what you do. You take a tenth of it. And you bring it into the storehouses of the city. And it's there for the priests. But not just for the priests. It's there for the priests to give to the poor people in your land. Not only that, 
when you harvest your fields. You've seen the harvesters out this week? They've been out getting the soybeans near us. Well, the law was, hey, you can't run your harvest or your combine right to the edge. You can't grab everything. You go through your fields, you've got to leave the edges there for the poor people. You're going through your vineyard, getting up the grapes. You can't go through it twice. Here's the deal. You go through it one time, and then everything that's left on the vine is for the poor people. The widow, there were laws for the widow, taking care of her in her plight. The deal was this. The widow's brother-in-law, was to help her conceive and have children so that her name could go on and she and her family could be cared for and provided for. Every seventh year, there was a law that said, all debts are canceled. In the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, the law said, hey, return the land that you've lost. It was written right into the law of God. Compassion for the poor, the oppressed, the widows, the orphans, the aliens. You get to the middle part of the Old Testament, wisdom literature. You get a book like Proverbs. And Proverbs and wisdom literature extols it. It praises compassion and teaches about it. Here's what it says in Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever's kind to the needy honors God. Your kindness is honoring to God. Your indifference, your oppression is showing contempt, hatred toward God. Proverbs 21, 13, if a man shuts his ear to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. God says, you turn a deaf ear to the poor who's calling out to help for you? Well, you need to understand this. If you do that to them, I won't listen to your prayers. I won't answer your prayers. Proverbs 22, 9, a generous man will himself be blessed for he shares his food with the poor. 29, 7, the righteous care about justice for the poor. But the wicked have no such concern. So if we don't care about justice, Proverbs 29, 7 says, we're wicked. Proverbs 31, 9, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Then you get to the prophets, and the prophets cry for it. They cry out against God's people like these prosecuting attorneys who come and say, hey, look, I'm I'm speaking on God's behalf. And here's what God has to say to you. You guys are messed up. You don't love God because you don't love your neighbor as yourself. You're not taking care of your own family. And so in the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy, we read a verse like this in verse 16. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Please the case. Plead the case of the widow. And when you get to the Gospels, We realize the gospel's blessed. Jesus, great beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive what? Mercy. The gospel's blessed through Christ's own beatitude. In the epistles, these letters written to the churches, the letters drive it home and make it crystal clear that this is what pure religion is about. James says this in James 1.27. Religion that... God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Here it is, pure religion. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And when you get into the epistles, the teaching's really interesting. The teaching in the epistles regarding compassion is it's not just for people you don't know. It actually starts with the people you do know. 
So in 1 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 5, they're talking about how does the church take care of the widows? And the teaching here is the first line of care for a widow is her own family. That's how it works. Then in Galatians 6, 9, and 10, it says, Don't grow weary in doing good. Rather, do good to all people and especially to the household of God, to God's family. And, and so it begins with our own family where we move out in compassion to those in need in our own family. It goes out then to the family of God and it continues out to all people. And then finally, you get to the end of the book and here's what the end of the book does about compassion. It celebrates the triumph of God's compassion and mercy through Christ where now his kingdom is firmly established. A place where all miseries cease, where no injustice exists, where our resurrection bodies will never need a doctor, where our relationships with God and each other will need no mediator. All things right, living in a new heaven and a new earth. That's what the Bible's teaching us about compassion. And so it's at the heart of God's character. It's at the heart of God's will taught clearly in the scriptures. And that's just a sampling of it. And then we get to this reality that the scriptures are very clear in telling us that we don't yet live in heaven, do we? So here we are in this fallen world still living under the curse. And so because of that, we understand that compassion is needed because suffering and misery exist today. And what is clear in Scripture is that each one of us and everyone that we see, no matter in what condition they are or why they got there or how they got there, that they are created in the image of God. And they not only desire mercy, but they deserve it because of that. The psalmist speaks of this in Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And so must we as we treat everyone created in his image. So what is this compassion that we're talking about? Let me say this. It begins with a feeling. A feeling where, there, where your heart is broken and sorrowful. Your heart goes out. There's, there's this sympathy this, this passion within you where, where you, you feel so bad about this person's plight, their misery, their distress, whatever has happened to them. In, in the New Testament, the Greek word for mercy is this word that means from the, from the bowels, from the intestine, from the gut, we would say today. It's that visceral feeling that we have when we see or hear of some tragedy or some horrific accident hits us right here but it's more than that it it begins with that but then it moves out with a desire to alleviate the pain and the suffering and the things that bring that upon a person or upon a society and so it's love in action it's not just feeling go oh i feel terrible but it's then moving out with the love of Christ in action. Well, when you think about the category in Scripture of who needs mercy, here are the categories we have in Scripture. The poor, 
the hungry, the sick, the widow, the orphan, our enemy, the refugee, the prisoner, the person who's wronged us, those who are immature, weak in their faith, the depressed, the brokenhearted, those who've lost their job, their shirt, their marriage, a loved one, anyone and everyone suffering and in distress needs compassion. And here's the deal. Some of it's really obvious. Like you walk down Straight Street and you go, those people have great need. It's obvious. But there's so much that goes on relative to compassion where you go, I didn't know. Because sometimes we don't let people know. Here's what I can tell you about this group right here. The greater percentage of us need mercy right now. Need mercy. There's hard stuff going on in our life. Well, Jesus was moved with compassion. And his compassion met the whole person. Here's the interesting thing about that. When Jesus sees the crowd in Matthew 9, his compassion goes out for them. His heart is moved with compassion, Matthew says. And the compassion he had right there was for their spiritual condition. And so he talks about their need for salvation. There's another time, the feeding of the 5,000. He looks out over the crowd and his heart is moved with compassion. There, it's all about the fact that these guys have been hanging with Jesus and listening to him teach for three days. They're out of food and there's not a Mickey D's around the corner. They're hungry. And his compassion is toward their physical need. And he was about the whole person. And it didn't just stop with physical and spiritual. It went to emotional. It included the social capacities of who we are as human beings. And all of that comes together beautifully in the story of the demoniac, Mark chapter 5. Remember that guy? I mean, this is some wild guy. He's running around the tombs up off the hillside of the Sea of Galilee. The guy doesn't have an ounce of clothes on. He's running around naked. He's demon-possessed. He's completely out of his mind. He's cutting himself. People in the town are trying to, to contain this wild animal who's running around their cemetery and they bind him up in chains and he powerfully breaks him. They can't do anything with him. And then Jesus meets him and with a word and a compassionate heart completely changes this man's life. And at the end of the story, he's dressed. He's in his right mind. He's been delivered from those demons and he is reunited to society. He says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. Jesus says, you need to go back to your family. Physical, spiritual, emotional, social. And that's what the gospel's doing through Christ. It's uniting all things together in Christ. Remember Ephesians 1.10. It's reversing the effects of the fall that messed us up, not just physically so that we're under the death, curse so we're going to die and these bodies remind us as we get older don't they it's not just the curse over our physical bodies it's a curse over our spiritual body our soul so that we're, we're not in a right relationship with god and, and it and the, the the sin problem did things between adam and eve and it messed up social relationships and jesus comes with compassion bring it all together. And at the end of the story is all things together are united in him. 
to the honor and praise of God. And as we move out in compassion, we remember that it's the whole person. And so our value here of compassionate service must never be too far away from the joyful witness. And the joyful witness must never be too far away from compassionate service. They, in a sense, are hand and glove, two wings of the same airplane. That's what Jesus was about. And that's what we need to be about. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 25? He's given this parable about the end when we stand before him as judge and he talks about separating people like the difference between sheep and goats. Remember what he said? He said that if you've taken care of the least of these, my brothers, and taken care of their physical needs, you've done it unto me. And, and when you didn't do it, you didn't do it for me. And that's such an important thing, that as we extend the mercy and compassion of Christ, we are meeting that person, but we understand that fundamentally we're doing it as unto Christ for his glory in honor of who he is. It is at the heart of our God, the heart of his son, Jesus Christ. It is the great need of our world, and we have the opportunity to follow in his steps. His body, his hands, and his feet. So let me read you this poem written by a a homeless woman in England having been frustrated by the religious establishment not being able to meet her needs. I was hungry and you formed a humanities group to discuss my hunger. I was in prison and you crept off quietly to your chapel and prayed for my release. I was naked and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless and you preached to me of the spiritual shelter, the love of God. I was lonely and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I'm still very hungry and lonely and cold. The Bible teaches us so much about compassion, but it also comes and it's useful for rebuking and it gives us that cold slap on the face it says wake up where are you going what are you doing Mark where is your life of compassion so where does the word of God hit it's between the eyes well here's a sampling go back to the prophets again Isaiah 55 58 here the deal is God's people are all into fasting setting aside themselves for God and devoting themselves to God to the point where they're putting away physical food so that they can hunger and thirst for God. God says, you know what? I'm tired and sick of your fasting because your fasting is hypocritical. You have all this great show for godliness, but there's no going in godliness in your life. And so he says, here's the kind of fast I'm looking for. To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke, to share your food with the hungry, to provide poor wanderers with shelter, to clothe the naked, to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. The Old Testament says, don't deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice, Deuteronomy 24. Don't take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Jesus gets in the religious leader's face 
And there's a rebuke for us. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. You guys are so good at tithing. You're tithing, you're picking spice rack. But you've forgotten the bigger things. What does he go on to say? But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And then you get the whole rebuke in James. He says, look, don't show favoritism to the rich. Uh, say, say a rich man comes in, you start, you start saying, hey, hey, come, come over here. Let me give you, can I just get a seat for you right in front here. You show a lot of interest in him. Then, then a poor man comes in. And, and you say, well, you know, um, you kind of blow him off. Don't want to get too close to him. Don't, don't have a really nice chair for him. You seat him right at your feet on the floor, James talks about. And then he goes on to say this at the end of the, of the, of the story here. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so the rebuke of God's word is don't withhold justice. Don't take advantage of the weak in society. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't neglect justice and mercy. Don't show favoritism. Well, Scripture is useful for rebuking. It comes to compassion. And then with the rebuke, there's always the correction. What, what, how do I get back on track? And there is no better verse in all of Scripture to get us right back on track. If, if you can remember one verse, write this one down. Underline it in your Bible. Micah 6, 8. Right at the end of the Old Testament. Here's what we have. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, let's just pick that apart. Act justly. He didn't say it's enough to think about justice. He didn't say it's enough to recruit others to to be just. He says we're to act justly. We're to do the right thing, and we're to fight against things that aren't doing right for others. Act justly. Act. We're to love mercy. We're to love mercy. We're to love God's mercy. We're to love God's mercy that, that just washes over us and has been, uh, he's forgiven us and, and he's patient with us. He's, he is slow to anger and abounding in love. We're, we're to love his mercy. I'm thinking about God's mercy a lot this last week and been just listening to this Bebo Norman song, My Eyes Have Seen Holy. Listen to this lyric, and we'll sing it twice, this chorus. And, I mean, we'll hear it twice, and maybe the second time you can sing it with me. So hear this lyric.
if we know of God's mercy in our life. He's referencing, I have to think, Isaiah, who saw the holy God and saw himself as a sinner and had his sins forgiven through the symbolism. Remember that hot coal. And then when God said, who's going to go for me? He says, send me. His life was completely changed. We love mercy because God has been merciful to us. And we love how God's developing in us more and more mercy. And here's what I know. I wish it wasn't so, but here's what I know. It's suffering that we go through that makes us more compassionate. If you're new to this place, here's what I can tell you. I'm new to this place. So here's my observation one year in. This place is full of merciful people. This place is flows in mercy. It's true. And you know why I think that's true? Because this church has gone through some really hard stuff. Two years ago, when their pastor, Brad Smith, died, it was a hard thing for everybody that was part of this family. And in the midst of that suffering, God was merciful and met this people in a unique way. And so we're a people who need to love mercy, Micah says. God says to us, love mercy, love God's mercy, love how God develops mercy in us and love the opportunity to extend mercy. Now, let's be honest. Some of us are justice people. We're not mercy people. I mean, we are into mercy like when we get pulled over by the cop. Don't, don't get me wrong. Nobody wants the ticket. I mean, it's a great day, isn't it, when you walk away with a warning slip. We love mercy. But you know how it is sometimes in life? I mean, let's just face it. Two weeks ago, our offering stolen. All right, now you get a little window on your mercy quotient. What was your first thought? Nail that guy, Lord, or nail those guys. Get them. We're into justice. And that's not wrong. God's into justice. Uh, we ought to be concerned about justice. We've just been reading about that. But you know what? We ought to be more and more people who just love extending mercy. You know what the great thing about mercy is? It doesn't cover injustice up. It doesn't say this wrong thing didn't happen. It acknowledges it straight up, eyes wide open. And the beautiful thing is you don't give them what they deserve, just like God didn't give us what we deserve. He gave us mercy. And we love to extend mercy Act justly. Love mercy. And then walk humbly. What does walk humbly mean? It means that we don't think we're better than the people who are suffering. It doesn't mean we're stupid like Job's friends who thought the reason Job is suffering is because he sinned. That's the only reason people suffer. It's because they sin. And so, man, you must have really done something bad that you're going through something this hard. That's, that's pride and that's bad theology. Walk humbly means, hey, I, I don't have all the answers. I really don't. I know you got a lot of questions. That why question is huge in your mind right now, and I'm not going to try and give you trivial, trite answers. I'm just going to tell you, I believe God's in control, and he can bring good things through this, and I just want to be near you to encourage you and help you and maybe to alleviate some of the hard things that you're going through right now. Humility. It's huge. So this is the corrective path. It's the, it's the path of acting justly, of loving mercy, 
and walking humbly. And here's the thing that we know in scriptures is that humility is closely linked to this whole thing of compassion. So in Colossians 3.12, it says this, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Then he goes on to say, also with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So it corrects us. It doesn't just rebuke us, Micah 6, 8. And then it trains us in righteousness. And the training in righteousness here is we're to be salt and light, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The training in righteousness is this. Be salt, be light, shine through your good works that others might glorify your Father in heaven. Robert Lewis, in his book, Church of Irresistible Influence, which, by the way, has had a lot of influence in the leadership of this church over the last couple of years, said, our world today is really tired of words. It wants real. It wants proof. He says this, we need bridges that balance public proclamation, that's joyful witness, with congregational incarnation, that's... that's Compassionate service, living it out in the flesh. Bridges that are suspended by the steel cables of the great commandment as well as the great commission. In the 21st century, the church must understand as never before that faith without works is dead. It's dead. And what I'm happy to say, um, that's not true, this church. Oh, we got a long way to go. But this church has been building bridges. Look at this slide of all the bridges we're building here and around the world. So we're building bridges to people that the Salvation Army ministers to as we go and cook dinners on Saturday nights to the homeless. Interfaith Hospitality Network there at the bottom. We're part of a second chance apartment to give this family a new lease on life. We furnish that apartment. Help them get a new start. It's through IHN also that we're ministering to homeless as they find a safe and warm place to spend the night in a church in our community. We've got Elizabeth House in Carinet dealing with young girls with an unwanted pregnancy. Nehemiah Project and Alex G at Fountain of Life as we partner with them over the years and have over the years. We've, we've committed to adopting Shank Elementary School, mentoring and serving them in all kinds of tangible ways. We're building homes with Habitat. We're sending boxes, little care packages of love to kids all around the world. Every week when we take an offering and there's a benevolence gift, it goes out to needy people right here in our own church. We're sending another team at the end of next month to go down to help keep rebuilding New Orleans after Katrina. Next month about this time, we'll be in Sampongo, Guatemala, a team again humbly extending the compassion of Christ. And these, are, these are just some of the ways that we do this in this place, realizing that those are formal ways. But you know what? The truth is, when it gets down to State Street, Salvation Army's got a leg up on me. 
on how to do ministry to street people. It makes all kinds of sense to partner with these people. And yet we don't want to miss the fact that today, this week, we're going to go around and we're going to brush shoulders with all kinds of people that need compassion. They need mercy. And you and I are positioned so wonderfully to extend it. When I look at that list of ministries, that's why I say we got to get that resale shop up and going. Because the great thing about the resale shop concept is we take the stuff we're already getting rid of, right? We're already sending it somewhere, to Goodwill or somewhere, down to St. Vinny's. Well, well, now we get it to our resale shop that's in a neighborhood where there are people who can benefit from those things. We start to have relationships and ministry to those people. The proceeds of those sales, which are ridiculously affordable, start mounting up so that over the next 10 years, maybe it's a million dollars, maybe it's more than a million dollars of monies that come that keep feeding outreach ministries here and around the world. And so if you've been thinking about the resale shop, so have I, and we need to get going on that one, all right? Now, what do we know? We know this, that you and I, Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship. That's, that's the word masterpiece. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We aren't saved by good works. We're saved by grace through faith. But now that we've got new life through the rich mercy of God, we are positioned to do good works, the things that he's prepared in us for us to do. We have his mercy. We're prepared if we know Christ. We have his spirit, Christ's spirit in us. We have the resources necessary for what he calls us to. We've got opportunities galore. And we have the wonderful promise of being blessed and receiving mercy as we are merciful to others. And we have this great hope that as we humbly extend his compassion to those in need, they will be moved to the point of praising and bringing glory to our Father as well. So Dora Creek Church, let's shine. Let's shine brightly for him, not just in our words, but in our actions, in our homes, in this place, in our community, and around the world, wherever the Lord sends us. Let's pray. Lord, we know this from your word, that when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And the prospering and prosperity you're talking about is prospering in this life of good works so that as they reach the people of a city like our city, Madison, the people are glad. Lord, that's what we want to be. We want to bring glory to you and extend glory to you as others recognize you as a great God as we shine for you. Help us, Lord. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.